Well, it is indeed good and a glorious thing to be among the saints here at Cornerstone. And before I begin this morning, I just want to take a moment, as someone new to this congregation, to share with fresh eyes the beauty of the sanctuary the Lord has given you. You have windows with light streaming in them. And for those of you who have ever been at our facility, which we are very thankful for, we're thankful for there are no windows. And this is something to be thankful for. And it is beautiful. And the acoustics are vibrant. And your singing is strong. So thanks be to God. If you will, you have a copy of God's Word there with you. Stand with me. And let's read God's Holy Word. The text this morning comes from Psalm 73. And so I'll read that and have you follow along. Hear now the word of God from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Their mouth, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the, gen the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus was my heart grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare 
all your works. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to thee, O God. You may be seated. You open with prayer. Our gracious and most glorious Father in heaven, as we gather in your presence before your holy, inerrant, inspired word, we do so expectantly. We know that your word is profitable. It teaches us and we know that it brings needed reproof and correction and instructs us in who we are and what you require of us. You have revealed to us through your word that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that these are the greatest commandments. All the law and the prophets depend upon these two great commandments from you. Therefore, we have great confidence that the word which you have read and will now hear preached is that which is both good for us and something we need. In light of this confidence, we pray that you will be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of the Word, and that it will go forth accomplishing in your people all that you have ordained for us this day, and that you will also delight to give us humble hearts to hear, receive, and apply according to your most holy will. And this we ask with grateful hearts and sure hope in the mighty name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. As I say, it is good to be here this morning among friends, I hope, and so I hope you'll grant me the liberty to perhaps have you think about some hard things. Maybe ask some difficult questions that are soul-searching as we look to God's Word and seek to apply it in all of its fullness to each of our lives. And I would like to start this morning by asking each of us gathered here to consider what I believe are a few common situations. And I would like for you to seriously consider any similar situations that you have experienced in your life. Nobody, nobody but the Lord need know your recollections, but reflecting upon your particular challenges may be helpful as we seek to understand this psalm. It's been a busy, joyful week filled with Many, many activities. Likely you wouldn't characterize this as a normal week. But, it's a typical week in some ways. It may have taken a physical toll on your body. You may even say that you were exhausted, particularly tired this morning. But hopefully, I trust, it is the good kind of exhaustion. This week, it may have been busyness or exhaustion, but in previous weeks, let's think back a little bit, perhaps it was the everyday grind of life, filled with emotion-triggering challenges. Young parents with little ones in the house, you almost certainly know what I mean. As you prepare to come to worship each Lord's Day morning, do you find that you regularly encounter some of these challenges? You find that you're running a few minutes late, perhaps, and trying to get the kids loaded in the car or the van, and of course someone can't find their shoes, or their belt, or their sweater, or their Bible. You finally get everyone into the car, and you turn the key, and the car doesn't start. Or perhaps you notice the fuel gauge and the 
low fuel light on the dash is flashing. Perhaps little Susie and Johnny have been bickering and at each other all morning, and quite despite your very sanctified parenting and mediation efforts, they quickly fall back into that old quarrelsome habit. Or maybe terse words have been exchanged between husband and wife, and in all the rush you have not taken the needed time to speak kindness with one another and seek forgiveness and restoration. Or perhaps things aren't going well at work for you. There are tensions with a co-worker or, or the lagging economy is causing your business to struggle or inflation is eating away at any hope you have of getting ahead financially. And then to top it all off, as you're on your way to church, you see that unbelieving co-worker getting his new boat ready to go to the lake. Apparently he got the big bonus that you were hoping for. But whatever the case may be, whether it is the barrage of bad news that you continually see in the headlines or the, the wickedness that is rampant in our country, the blatant disregard for the sanctity of human life being promoted by those whose very duty it is to protect and serve that life, or the perversities in the, that we see from the societal elite who frame these perversions as good and quickly label anyone who disagrees with them as an oppressor and even sometimes with the force of law behind them, it can at times be difficult to enter the sanctuary of God with joy, with anticipation, with gladness, and with a right spirit and a right frame of mind. Day by day we face the challenges of life, some mundane and some extraordinary, but all of them, every single one of them, tend to influence how we think and feel. Is this familiar to anybody gathered here this morning? Does it occasionally happen? Do you know what I'm talking about? If you don't, just hang in there. I'll preach to myself all morning long. I need this. And I would contend that all these things and so many more taint, tarnish, and warp our perspective, our ability to think. Our minds are distracted by all these issues and our hearts can grow cold. And even our theology begins to suffer. And we need, we desperately need the perspective corrective of worship. Though you may not feel it, you need it. When it is most difficult to pull everything together to come to worship, that is when you most need to press through the trials and gather with the saints of God and worship Him in spirit and truth. And this, I believe, is the truth that Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, is pointing us to. So we'll track with this psalm with, along with Asaph, who I believe is the author, it's identified as a psalm of Asaph. It could have been penned by Asaph, or it could have been penned for Asaph, but we're going to look at this through the eyes of Asaph. And so as you begin reading and studying a psalm, it is often helpful to first understand what type of psalm it is that you're reading. There are psalms for use in temple worship. There are laments, imprecatory, imprecatory psalms, psalms of wisdom, Thanksgiving and praise, there are psalms about the law, as well as 
royal and prophetic psalms. So what type of psalm is Psalm 73? Well, I think first it's good to acknowledge that there is no absolute agreed-to list of categories for the psalms. And even if you do settle on a category list, not every psalm fits neatly into one category, and I believe such is the case here with Psalm 73. Many commentators will, will list this as a lament. Others will, many others will put this in the category of wisdom. But I think, really, Psalm 73 is both. Um, One-third of the psalms can be characterized as laments, and so it, we have that going for us. The laments are often rich in wisdom, however, and so we have both categories. But all of these laments, in particular, display a similar form to one another, roughly following this pattern. First, they begin with an acknowledgement of God, followed by a crying out over some personal matter or national matter. Second, they include expressions of despair, helplessness, or an inability to understand. Frustration and questioning are frequently part of the psalm. Third, we often see a developing awareness that God is still involved, and this moves the author toward a renewed understanding of God's character and his purposes. Fourth, a new perspective toward life and the circumstances are described. And fifth, we see a renewed joy in the right response of worship. And finally, often there is a refreshed heart for ministry to God's people. And I believe Psalm 73 follows this pattern. So I, as I said, it was written by Asaph, the director of temple music during the time of King David. And someone who was, Asaph was someone given to pondering deep matters and to putting them into song and psalm. He was familiar with God's word and committed to seeking understanding through all of the difficulties of life. Psalm 73 is a masterpiece of wisdom developed through years of wrestling with life's questions and the seeming contradictions found in those questions. And so we must never forget, though, even as we look at Asaph as the author, it is the Holy Spirit that has inspired all of Scripture. Psalm 73 opens with Asaph acknowledging who God is, and he confesses rightly the character of God. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Taken alone, even out of its context, verse 1 is true. Asaph is one of God's chosen people, someone dedicated to Yahweh's service in the temple. And so we should expect that Asaph would know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I Am who changes not and who is eternal, long-suffering, holy, righteous, and good. He knows the Creator God who is sovereign over all His creation and His creatures. Asaph knows who God is. He knows the strength of God's might. In Psalm 74, he writes, You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun, the sun that so gloriously shines through these windows. Asaph knows the history of God's dealing with his people. In Psalm 78, Asaph writes again, and it's just one example of this, as he tells the story of Israel's sin and their unfaithfulness, and yet he also recounts God's faithfulness, deliverance, and victory over his enemies, and, he, and is gently shepherding them according to his integrity. 
the integrity of his heart. Asaph knows the God that he is worshiping. Asaph also knows that God always keeps his covenant promises. And yet, in verse 2, we see his struggle as he reveals his state of mind. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So despite what he had rightly declared in verse 1, Asaph doesn't sugarcoat his feelings. He has fallen into a dark place of confusion and despair. But why? Why has the theologically astute chief musician fallen into despair? Well, he goes on to tell us in verses 3 through 12, For I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Their mouth, set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues walk through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and, and waters of a full cup are drained by them and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Things were occurring around Asaph. They seemed to be inconsistent with his understanding of God. He was struggling to reconcile his present understanding with what he saw with his eyes. So why would these things be a source of such despair to Asaph? And I might ask, are they a source of despair for you or for me? Asaph writes that he was envious of the boastful. Envious of the boastful. Is there some subtle pride also working in us? Are we envious of the boastful? Does something in us suggest that we deserve prosperity more than those we deem as wicked? We look out in the world and we see unfairness and we see the wicked prospering. We see those not going to church polishing their boat to go to the lake. Does that stir up envy in us? Do we think that it's not fair? Are we perhaps a bit jealous of them or afraid of them setting the agendas for our employer or your club or whatever the case may be? And on what basis would we believe that we are more deserving? Is there in us, in, in us the thought that our, our lots in life should correspond to how good we are? Do we do that? Do we think that we're, we're, we deserve better? It's as if we're arguing with God. And are we seeking affirmation of our values by the world? Or could it be that we are secret, secretly yearning for some reward or assurance that we are on good terms with God? Right? Right? We, we think if things aren't going well for us, something's amiss. We think if our financial situation is down, perhaps something's broken with our relationship with God. Sometimes it may be 
but to draw a direct correlation there is an error. It may take some soul searching to earnestly and honestly answer these types of questions. Does, does the comfort of our faith depend on what we see around us? Does inconsistency be, between what we believe and what we observe rattle the foundation of our faith even just a little bit? Can you at all identify with Asaph's struggles as we read the first part of this psalm? In so many ways, both small and large, the events of life often appear not to fit our concept of an all-powerful, all-wise, and perfectly loving God. And so in those moments, we come, with, come up with all sorts of questions. See if any of these sound familiar to you. Even ask these questions. Why is there so much human suffering? Why would God, who has control of all nature and human events, not intervene to prevent disasters, disease, crime, or wars? What possible purpose could there be for God's allowing the murder of unborn children? Why does child abuse, bullying, and betrayal exist? Why do Christian families experience conflict? And why do so many marriages fail? Why do children suffer and die? Why are missionaries out there serving the Lord killed or kidnapped or suffer persecution? What sense can be made of societal rejection, isolation, and the abundance of depression and suicide that we see in the world around us? Why would God continue to populate the earth with people destined to experience such things? And the list of questions goes on and on. We can ponder such questions with a warped or obscured perspective. And if we're not careful, we run the risk of supporting the secular academic's false, false syllogism. And perhaps you've heard this in one form or another. It goes something like this. If an all-good God exists, then there can be no evil. There is evil in the world, therefore... God doesn't exist. Have you heard something like that before? You hear this on the college campuses. I love those guys who go out and talk to these college students in the way they're, they're just not trained to think. Of course, this is utterly false. Amen? And, and it's but one reason we need to have a firm grasp of the fall and an understanding of human depravity as revealed in Scripture. Just as we don't develop our understanding of the end times by reading the headlines, neither should we develop our understanding of God as we consider the apparent prosperity of God-hating neighbors or the success of worldly businessmen or politicians. But like Asaph and other biblical authors, as we're honest, we must sometimes acknowledge our own questions and doubts. I believe sometimes as Christians we're afraid to acknowledge that a doubt slips into our minds or that we have a question, is God really this way? Or did he mean that when he said this? Or, oh Lord, my faith is weak, I have doubts. Doubts and questions do come, but these questions and doubts are only transient reminders that something is amiss. Our heart isn't right. We aren't thinking clearly. We're focused on the wrong thing and have drawn the wrong conclusions. And at times like this, there should be a warning siren going off in our spirits. 
And that warning siren is there to tell us these are the times that we need to urgently seek the face of God. And these are also the times when we are vulnerable. Vulnerable to deceptive introspection that can push us further into despair. And this is the point that I believe Asaph comes to in verses 13 through 16. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Rather than recalling to mind that theological point that he knew so very well, the sovereignty of God, and clinging tightly to his opening declaration that truly God is good to Israel, Asaph looks back and looks around and questions his prior loyalty to God. His obedience to the law of God, his honest dealings with other men, and his faithful service in the temple have only resulted, or so he feels, in him being plagued all day long and chastened every morning. What's the use? Why bother? The wicked don't do this, and yet they prosper. And that's where his mind went. These are the kinds of thoughts he is wrestling with. But he is also aware of the incongruity of such thoughts, and thankfully they are just thoughts. Because if he had actually said them out loud to others, for others to hear, he would have been speaking falsehood to those in his hearing. He knows this and has kept his thoughts to himself while he tried to make sense of it all. And yet, he was at the point of stumbling, almost slipping. It was even painful to consider such thoughts. You can sense the turmoil in his spirit. Something was dreadfully wrong. Until. Such a wonderful word. Until he went into the sanctuary of God. Then he understood their end. Here in verse 17, we find the pinnacle, the high point of this psalm. It is the turning point in the psalm. And the turning point in Asaph's spirit. It is in the sanctuary of God, in the presence of the triune God of Scripture, that Asaph receives the perspective corrective of worship. His thinking had become confused by the things he saw around him. The more he thought, the more confused he became. The more comparisons he made of himself with the ungodly, the worse he felt. His theology, his understanding of God, had somehow become warped and weakened, and he was no longer thinking rightly about God and His ways. But then he entered into the worship of God, and suddenly he understood rightly what was the end of the proud, of the scoffers, the mockers, and the boastful. He understood that God was indeed sovereign and would deal with the evildoers in due time according to His purposes. Have you ever experienced something like this? Have you, have you found that throughout the course of worship there is a change in your spirit? Perhaps you may have come to church in a rather dark state one time. Nothing seems right. Nothing seems to be going your way. 
You're cheerfully greeted by a smiling soul at the door of the sanctuary, and you are in that moment tempted to respond, bah, humbug. Or maybe worse. You can't think of a single thing to be thankful for. Truly thankful from the heart, that is. And as you take your usual seat in the pew, you realize you're no longer resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Him has grown cold. And then you pray. And you confess your sins to God. And you sing to God. And you hear God's Word read and preached and you partake of the Lord's Supper. You come before God and you worship Him. And as you come into His sanctuary, you remember it is all about God. It is not even what you can get out of worship. And somehow, quite mysteriously, your perspective changes. Your spirit is lifted. The clouds begin to part. The cranky cobwebs are swept away. The brightness of real reality begins to return. Your mind then begins to see things as they really are. The temporary insanity you walked in with is gone and has been replaced with a healthy gladness of heart. You remember that you do actually have things to be thankful for. Indeed, much to be thankful for. The glory of Christ is shown through the dark lies of the evil one. Things are once again right side up. You remember who you are and to whom you belong. There has been a spiritual perspective corrective that affects how you think and how you live. And this is all because you came into the sanctuary and you worshiped God. And we see this change of perspective with Asaph in verses 18 through 20. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Gone, gone are Asaph's concerns about the prosperity of the wicked. He sees once again that God has got this well in hand and is fully in control. What really matters is not their pride or their abundance and their successes as they mock God, for this will only result in their ultimate destruction according to God's plan and in His timing. With the corrected perspective, Received in worship, Asaph now sees himself more clearly in verses 21 through 24. Thus my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me into glory. He's not even thinking like the same person he described just a few verses earlier. I don't know about you, as I said earlier, but there have been times after worship that I have been genuinely grieved by the foolish and self-centered thoughts that I brought into the sanctuary. I've come in gloomy, depressed, down, thinking wrongly about everything, 
truly grieved by these thoughts. But it is always... Let me make sure I'm telling the truth. I believe that it has always been true, that it is the good kind of grief, at least the times I remember. It is the grief you feel when confronted in your sin by a brother who loves you and cares deeply for you. It is the kind of grief that quickly turns to thanksgiving as you feel the weight of sin lifted and know afresh the joy of God's salvation. Your confidence and reliance upon Christ has been restored. You once again know His presence and are assured that He is with you, guiding you with His counsel all the way through life, even to life eternal. And with this corrected perspective, you are able to say along with Asaph, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth I desire besides you. This is no Pollyanna perspective. You know that the trials of life will continue to follow you. Your body will weaken through sickness and age. Your spirit will continue to know periods of discouragement. But God is there. You see Him clearly now. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Are the wicked still out there? Yes. Will you see, still see them prospering? Yes. Will your soul still be vexed when they mock God and promote all sorts of evil? Yes. Will you still be envious of the boastful when you see their prosperity? With this new corrected perspective and by God's help, the answer is no. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Having entered into the true worship of God the Father in the Spirit, through His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how could you, even for one moment, experience such envy? You can't. At least not when you're thinking rightly. When you are seeing the world through the lens of Scripture and have the right perspective on things. But as Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when he found the disciples sleeping instead of watching and praying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. But God built into the very fabric of creation and into us as those created after his image the need to worship him in a particular way, one day in seven. We have been instructed to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some. And he's done this for a reason. The effect of the fall is such that we are easily distracted by the trials of life. Our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when we are spiritually malnourished, we become weak and easy prey for the enemy's devices. A steady diet of worldly news and entertainment all too readily displace the needed nourishment of God's word and worship. 
Our relationship with God is not a once and done deal. Yes, we have been sealed for the day of redemption. And yes, we absolutely have been given eternal life. We'll never perish. And no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. But we are still weak and needy. We are to live life in the light of these truths and not presume upon them. For the men here who are married or newly married, I assume that you likely kissed your wife the day you married, and you also told her that you love her. Is this right? Okay, good. I see some smiles. I'm liking that. And hopefully that's not the only time you did this. But if by chance that is true of you, I'd like very much to talk to you after the service. <laughs> because that would be a gross presumption on your part. Likewise, it would be a great sin and gross presumption if we as Christians did this with regards to gathering with the saints for corporate worship. It is here in the context of corporate worship that we are nourished, we are encouraged, sharpened, and equipped for the next six days of our lives. And then we need to be gathered again for worship week after week for the rest of our lives. We need God and and we need each other. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. And we need to worship God together as his people. And those of you who know me know that you're not going to get out of here without a quote or two, so hang on. In his great work, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Mason, in, in wrestling with the problem of the effect of liberalism in the church, and the need to be united in Christ, yet faithful as the church writes, whatever the solution there may be, one thing is clear. There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the human soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in the name of Jesus to forget the moment all those things, and all those things that divide nation from nation, race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling promise, promise, problems of industrial life, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that is the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house, will go forth a river that will revive a weary world." End quote. So if you are weary, if you are confused by the happenings in the world, if you have a deep longing in your soul to yoke together with your brother and sister in Christ, to prepare for the battle of life, then you can be certain that you have a great need 
to enter the sanctuary of God and worship Him in spirit and truth. And so we need to be able to say and confess with Asaph, but it is good for us to draw near to God. We have put our trust in the Lord God that we may declare all His works. And how do we declare His works? Consider these words from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give to the Lord Give to the Lord, O families of peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord glory, do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. This is what you were created for. This is what your soul longs for and hungers for. And this is your spiritual nourishment, your mission statement, your prime directive, and the foundation from which all other ministry flows. Worship. Worship. We all, each and every one of us gathered here today, need the perspective corrective found only in worship. So let it be your delight. Let it be your absolute delight to gather with the saints in worship. Know that God who spoke all of creation into existence by the word of His power is pleased to meet with you here. Is that not wonderful to consider? Is that not just mind-blowing? And knowing how important it is to enter the sanctuary week after week, doesn't it make sense that you should also prepare for such worship? Ecclesiastes 5.1 exhorts us to walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. As believers, we are to come prepared for worship. Don't come with a cold heart and in so doing give the sacrifice of fools, but come warm-hearted prayed up, ready to enter the worship of God. Come expectantly. Come with anticipation. Come with desire to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Okay, ready to do that? What do we do? How do you come prepared for worship? And how can you know if you are prepared? Now forgive me if I'm just repeating things that Brother Matt has told you over and over through the years but it's my first time here. Perhaps one way you can evaluate this and ask yourself what the Lord's Day morning looks like. What does your average Lord's Day morning look like? Are you running around like chickens with your heads cut off? <laughs> then maybe you haven't prepared as well as you should have. Consider making a to-do list to check on Saturday so it would help with your preparations. No, I'm not picking on you. You have little ones. It's hard. It's hard. But deliberate thinking is important. 
And then maybe ask yourself, are you easily frustrated on the Lord's Day morning? I've talked to many people who have revealed that there is a particular challenge in their spirit as they prepare to come to worship. There's a frustration that easily wells up. And if that's the case for you, then perhaps more prayerful preparation may be in order. Do you spend an inordinate amount of time looking for missing shoes, socks, pants, shirts, jackets, or neckties? Anyone? Never been there. This is a fabulous church, man. No one's ever experienced this. How about this? Do you strive to get a good night's rest? Or do you try to squeeze as much weekend as possible out of your weekend and stay up late Saturday night watching a movie? Have you considered, think about this one, have you considered your fellowship and relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ knowing that the very next day you're coming to the Lord's table? So ask yourself, do you need to seek forgiveness from someone? If so, then do it. Pursue that person and seek restoration to the best of your ability. Have you given thanks for the week that has passed and set aside the worries and duties of tomorrow so that you can fully enter into worship without any undue cares and distractions? Have you done that? A thankful heart is a prepared heart for worship. These are things that we all I believe, at one time or another, every single one of us struggle with from time to time. If you are the parents of little ones, you know the struggle keenly. Yet the, the exhortation remains, consider your routines. Consider those triggers that send your spirit or your thoughts down a dark or down or distracting direction. How can you reorder or prioritize your preparations for the Lord's Day? Can you gather and set aside those little shoes, socks, and whatever else the day before? Can you cast out those critical thoughts about your brother or your sister and consider their strengths and their good characteristics instead and then be thankful for them? Can you deliberately be thankful for the day that the Lord has made and be glad in it? I know you can. I know we can. So let's Let's do this. Let's be about this preparation for worship. And I also want you to know that as you gather in true worship, you are not only preparing for the battles of life, but you are engaging in a most important spiritual warfare. It is in the sanctuary that victory is found. Victory in this life and victory in the life to come and the victory is sure because the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended into heaven, having conquered the grave. And he's sitting at the right hand of the God the Father, making all his enemies his footstool. He is risen. He is reigning. In him we are more than conquerors, and absolutely nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So enter into his sanctuary. And worship the Lord our God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, with glad hearts we give thanks to you for your word of truth. 
and for the great privilege of gathering to worship you this day. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word and called us into your family, giving to us the spirit of adoption. We're thankful that before the foundation of the world you knew us and chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before Christ in love. And we are thankful that we can be confident that you will accomplish all your holy will perfectly according to your plan and according to your desires. O Lord, open our eyes that we may behold the glory of Christ. Open our ears that we may hear the truth of your word as it is proclaimed. Open our hearts and apply that very word to them, making us evermore into the image of Christ. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. <laughs> 